You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 6, believe it or not, that's where we will be today. And as you're all aware, we had a false start a couple of weeks ago where we tried to organise uh, our first gathering in the home and uh, all fell apart because I hadn't read the fine print on the government website that uh, told me that we were only able to have two other visitors in the home. But now that's all opened up, so we can do 15, and uh, we are within the regulations at the moment and looking forward to them easing a bit more in the future. So it's been, if my memory serves correctly, since the 15th of March, the last time we've gathered together and seen each other face-to-face. That's 37 weeks, two-thirds of a year that we haven't been able to meet in this way, was beginning to feel like that day would never come, that we could get together again. As I've mentioned, I think many times during that period, we still have it pretty good here in Australia. In some parts of the world, as I pray, Christians are not allowed to gather at all, ever, under any circumstances. And the Jews in Old Testament times were exiled from their place of worship, the God-ordained and God-prescribed place of worship, the temple, for 70 years and unable to exercise the worship that God had had ordained in the way that he'd prescribed it. So I thank God that we live here in Australia in this period of time. I thank God for the technology that's allowed us to stay connected with each other and to continue to learn, to grow, to encourage each other and even to worship together during that time, even though we've been separated by the global pandemic. We're going to finish our first face-to-face, or maybe I should say mask-to-mask meeting this morning with communion. Traditionally, we've only had communion on a monthly basis here at City Edge Church, so that means this year we've missed out on several opportunities to share the bread and the juice together. Between now and Christmas, we're going to try and catch up a little bit on that, and we're going to do communion on a weekly basis as we gather together. Now, I know some other churches have been doing virtual communion where their people organise their own bread and juice in their own home and all take it at the same time when the leader uh, tells them to take it. It's not my place to judge whether they're right or wrong to do that. Each of us has to determine for himself or herself what we believe Scripture teaches on this. And it seems to me Scripture leaves plenty of room for flexibility in the frequency of taking communion. For example, the Bible doesn't say you must do it weekly. Instead, it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That could be daily. It could be weekly. could be monthly. It could be once every 10 years. The Bible doesn't specify frequency. My understanding, though, is that regardless of the frequency you choose to celebrate communions, the scriptures indicate that it's something to be celebrated when the saints gather together. When they gather together in one place to worship as a local church. That's why we haven't done it virtually since the lockdown commenced. We just haven't been able to gather together. I'm not personally convinced that 
doing church over Zoom truly constitutes church. As good as it's been during difficult circumstances to have the Zoom option, um, I'm also not convinced that taking communion anywhere outside of the local church gathering is actually appropriate. Now, that's just my understanding. I wouldn't build a uh, doctrine around it, and I wouldn't exclude anyone because of that. As I said, Scripture seems to me to allow plenty of room for flexibility and to draw different conclusions in good conscience. Today, though, we'll be taking communion a little differently to the way we've done it in the past. Where in the times past, we've sliced up a loaf of bread, usually bought from somewhere like Baker's Delight, and uh, poured juice into cups for everyone to uh, to have individual serves, but to share all out of the one bottle and the one loaf of bread. Today, we've got COVID-safe individual serves of the bread and the juice. Today and over the next several weeks or so, John will be leading us in communion. Now, it's timely that we should be celebrating communion today. For our text is the one where Jesus talks about himself being the true bread, the true bread from heaven. And he talks about the necessity of eating him to have eternal life. The Jews at the time, as they were prone to do, misunderstood what Jesus said. And we could easily fall into the same trap today. And some people have fallen into that trap. So if you'd please open your Bibles to John chapter 6 and verse 27. That's where we'll start. We'll read several verses then we'll skip over about 10 and then we'll come back into the chapter for a little while. Now, this may be the most difficult portion of John's gospel to understand and to accept. Not only is it difficult for us to get our heads around today, it was also difficult for Jesus' original hearers. It was so difficult, in fact, that by the end of this chapter, all of his followers abandoned him, all except the 12. And, of course, we know one of the 12 is a devil, as Jesus says at the end of the chapter. The crowd couldn't accept what Jesus had to say, so they all turned their back on him. We need to take care with this passage, lest we do the same. While we're reading it, I want you to take notice of all the references in there to believing or to coming or eating or drinking. And look out for what Jesus says will be the result of believing, coming, eating and drinking. Look out also for all the references to eternal life. These are important. So let's start with verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now at this point, Jesus goes into an explanation of why some believe and many don't. That's also a difficult and challenging passage. We'll come back to that in a future study. But now scroll down to verse 47 and we'll pick it up again where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Is it any wonder that the Jews didn't understand Jesus? If you eat the bread that comes down from heaven, if you eat me, you will never die. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they all wonder. And well might we ask too, what does it mean to eat his flesh and to drink his blood? One of the accusations levelled against the early Christians were that they practised cannibalism. They ate human flesh. It was a complete lie, of course, and a gross distortion of what Jesus says here. But to those outside of the faith, maybe it's not so surprising that they misunderstood in that way. So what does he mean? A context, of course, is important. You'd remember from previous looks at John chapter 6 that the Passover is approaching. It's the most important festival on the Jewish calendar. It's a celebration of their deliverance from bondage in Egypt many, many centuries before. That deliverance came about when, at the Lord's command, each household sacrificed a lamb, using its blood to paint a sign of protection around the door of the house, then baking bread and eating the flesh of the lamb. Then after escaping Egypt, and while they were travelling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land, God fed them daily with manna from heaven for 40 years. These are the things that are uppermost in the minds of the Jews around Passover time. All that and the expectation that a new deliverer would come, setting them free from 
the hated Roman oppression once and for all, and once again providing them manna to eat. Then you recall that it was only yesterday across the other side of the lake that Jesus miraculously fed the whole multitude. If you are the deliverer who is to come, Jesus, then feed us continually with manna from heaven, they tell him. Now, Jesus has already told them five times in this conversation that the manna wasn't the true bread from heaven. That bread, the manna, didn't last. That bread could only sustain for a day. That bread only represented the true bread, the living bread that was to come. But Jesus himself is the living bread. Jesus expands that thought by telling them that, that they must eat of this bread, eat his flesh. For that food, his flesh, not only gives life now, but will sustain for eternity. And as he gets further into this discussion, he gets more explicit about how it sustains and gives life. So he begins by telling them that they must believe in him. Don't work for the food that perishes, he tells them. But this is the work you must do. Believe in him who God has sent. <coughs> That's where it all starts. Believing in Jesus. Jesus presents this action of believing in many different ways through this passage. In verse 29, he said to work and to believe. In verse 35, he says, come to him, promising that all who will come to him will never go hungry. And whoever believes will never thirst. In verse 47, Jesus says of himself as plainly as you like, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. Note that he didn't say will have, but has already. The tense of that verb is important. For the very moment you believe in Jesus, your life truly begins. Your life begins for eternity. In verse 48, Jesus makes the first of several I am statements that John records in this gospel. And he says, I am the bread of life. There'll be another six of those I am statements to come before the gospel's finished. But here Jesus declares in those uncertain terms that, that he is the same one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush way back in Exodus. He is the great I am, which is translated in many English versions as Jehovah or Yahweh. I am is Yahweh. I am is Jehovah. And Jesus is, is claiming to be Yahweh. That means that Jesus is claiming to be the one who rescued them from Egypt. He's claiming to be the one who led them through the wilderness. He's claiming to be the one who provided water for them in their travels throughout the desert. And in chapters to come, he will tell the Jews before Abraham was, I am. He was declaring his eternity to these people at this time. It's an audacious claim if it's not true. As we work through this passage, Jesus moves the discussion along in a particular direction. It begins with Jesus telling them that they must believe and they must come to him for eternal life. But then he gets more explicit 
by insisting that they must eat, they must feed on the true bread if they would live forever. That's hard enough for them to accept, but Jesus really throws a spanner in the works when he tells them in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's too much for the Jews. That really gets the argument started. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves. Disputed is not a strong enough word to say what was going on. They had heated arguments. You can almost imagine them coming to blows, arguing over this and saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus says, in essence, you don't like that? Then try this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. It was hard enough for the Jews to accept that Jesus was talking about himself in the first place. But he compounds the problem by telling them not only that they must eat his flesh, but they must also drink his blood. The image of eating human flesh and drinking blood is pretty disgusting to us even today. But it was an absolute abomination to the Jews. For the Lord had clearly said as far back as to Noah in Genesis chapter 9, that it was absolutely forbidden to drink blood. So we might ask, why do you have to make it sound so gross, Jesus? It's hard enough to accept what you're saying at the best of times. Why do you make it so much harder? If you really want people to believe in you, why don't you soften up your message a little bit so you don't offend us so much? It's a good question. We might have to explore that. In fact, we will explore that sometime in the future. Why does Jesus so frequently seem to go out of his way to make things harder to accept rather than easier? The answer to that question, though, is quite damning. That in itself is a warning to us. What do you do with the words of scripture that you don't like? the ones that seem to challenge your preciously held beliefs? Do you ask the Holy Spirit to help you to understand and accept and respond to what you're reading? Or do you decide to reject because you don't agree with it or you don't like it? So if Jesus decided to use this graphic language, this offensive language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he must have had a good reason. What is it about eating and drinking that helps him to make his point? First, eating is necessary. There are plenty of things that are necessary to life. Exercise is necessary. Keeping your mind active is necessary. But few things are as necessary as eating. If you don't eat, it won't be very long before you won't be able to do the other things either. So to live spiritually, 
We must feed on Christ. But how do we feed on Christ? Primarily, it's through taking in the word of God, the Bible. Remember Jesus telling Satan at the temptation, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's the number one source of our spiritual sustenance. To read, to study, to hear, to sing, to sit under the preaching of the word, to discuss the scriptures, all of it feeds our soul. And it will build our spiritual strength. It will build our faith into something that sustains us, not only in this life, but prepares us and will sustain us and endure into the life to come. It's hard to put too much importance on the need to get into the word of God and to get the word of God into you. Secondly, eating is how we respond to a need, in this case, hunger. It's an acknowledgement that something is missing that there's something inside that needs to be filled. When the Lord extends his grace and his mercy to us in salvation, he also puts an appetite within us to hear him and his words in the Bible. It's a desire to know and understand the scriptures. And if you have that, that's a pretty good sign that you have actually been saved. Conversely, a lack of interest may be a warning sign. Have you strayed from the path and need to find your way back? Or have you never been born again in the first place? It's a serious question. And it's one that I urge you to take to the Lord to resolve. What is your hunger for the word? Third, eating involves taking the food in. It's not enough to just know about the food. It's not enough to just look at it spread out on the table. You must eat it. You must appropriate it into your body. Now, plenty of people know about Jesus. Plenty of people believe in Jesus. But for many people, it's only an external knowledge, an external belief. It hasn't changed them. The Bible tells us that even the demons believe. But that sort of belief, the sort that knows but doesn't respond, does nothing to help the demons and it will do nothing to help us. Eating involves more than just looking at the food, more than just believing that it's there in front of you, more than just knowing that it's available. Eating means you must take it into yourself if you're going to benefit from it. That's why Jesus says we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. We have a responsibility to act on what we know and what we see. Next, eating is personal. No one else can eat for you. You must be the one who eats. It won't benefit you in the least that your parents were good eaters or your spouse, or your friends have a healthy appetite. If you don't eat, you will perish. So too, you must come to Christ. 
you must believe in him. You must take him into yourself by faith or you will have no life in you. No true life, no genuine life, no eternal life. For Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. It's only those who feed on my flesh, he said, and drink my blood who have eternal life, and only those that I will raise up on the last day. You know, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not just talking about something way off in the never, never, never. Something that only happens after you die. Eternal life is something that begins right now. Whether you're 80 years old, or eight years old, or eight months old. Eternal life is a gift offered by Jesus Christ to all who would believe in him, to all who would come to him. Your life will change the moment you decide to believe in him, the moment you choose to feed on him, as he has put it here in this passage. I won't and I can't promise you health and wealth and comfort and security, for the Bible never promises that. But I will promise you on the authority of the words of Jesus Christ himself that your inner hunger and your thirst will be satisfied and satisfied for all time. This is not a choice between a little bit of happiness versus a lot more happiness. It's not a decision between a bit of satisfaction now and more satisfaction. It's a matter of life and death. To know Jesus, to believe in him, to feed on him, is to live both now and eternally. And it's to be never condemned or punished for this true bread, this living bread, Jesus Christ has carried your punishment and offers you life instead. The benefits of feeding on Christ are throughout this passage that we've looked at today. We haven't spent any time really on the benefits of it, but let me just point out a few of them as we close. <clears throat> we have the certainty of salvation. Verse 54 tells us that whoever feeds on my flesh has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Then we enter into a life-changing relationship, a union with Jesus Christ. Verse 56 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. If Christ were to abandon you, it would be like having to cut out a part of himself. Then we receive <clears throat> strength for living this life and facing every circumstance that the enemy or that life can throw at us. The one who feeds on me will live forever. Friends, this is an offer for everyone. No one is excluded from it. If you've heard the call to come, to believe, then you have a call and a responsibility to respond to him. If you've never done that before, you might ask, how do I come to Christ? What must I do to gain eternal life? 
<clears throat> if that's your situation, why don't you join me in this prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, I never really knew what this emptiness, this hunger was inside of me until now. But now I see that it's a hunger for true bread, for something that will satisfy me for eternity. I know now that you are the only source of this bread. So I come to you today asking, Lord, give me this bread. I accept that I can only be rescued from this emptiness if I come to you, if I believe in you. So I acknowledge the things you say about yourself in the Bible and the things that you say about me also. I know that I'm not holy or pure, Lord. I know that I've messed up in every area of my life. And I realise that you are the only one who can solve that problem for me. Lord, I can't meet your standards of holiness by my efforts or by my good behaviour. But Jesus, I know that you died on that cross 2,000 years ago so that my sins could be paid for, so that I might be rescued from slavery to that sin and so that I might have eternal life with you. So I come to you today, Jesus, asking that you would receive me as one of your followers. Thank you, Jesus, for welcoming, welcoming me into your family. Amen. If you have just prayed that prayer for the first time, or if you have already prayed something similar in the past, you can have confidence that he will welcome you. You can have confidence that he will never abandon you. You can have confidence that he will never turn his face away from you. He promises it in the passage we've looked at here today. And he promises it in hundreds, maybe thousands of other places in the Bible. He knows how to look after his own. If Jesus Christ is your bread, your life, you not only have eternal life today, but you need never fear death. For he has also promised to raise you up at the last day. No matter what may happen to your body in the grave, no matter how long you may be dead, one day it will be raised up new and imperishable. There is nothing and no one here on earth that can match that promise. Now we're about to share in communion now, so I'll invite John to come up and lead us in that. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Um, if you're anything like me, you've probably really missed physically gathering for church. Um, if you're anything like me, you probably really missed the uh, the Lord's Supper as well. So today, I don't want to um, I don't want to do another sermon. Does done an excellent job with that this morning. Uh, perfect timing, focusing on uh, on the, the true true bread. Um, but over the next four weeks, we are going to be having the Lord's Supper each week for the next four weeks. I better take that off. I'm getting the signals. Um, we're going to have the Lord's Supper over the next four weeks together. So I want to sort of spend five or ten minutes just doing a little, a real basic mini teaching series about the Lord's Supper 
over that four-week period. Um, there's four basic sort of separate, distinct understandings of what we're doing when we have the Lord's Supper. And I kind of want to just go through each of those four. Um, I think there's one, there's one correct view. I'll just put that out there at the start. Um, we're going to start with one that I don't believe is the correct view, but this is the Roman Catholic view. This is the, the view of transubstantiation. Um, when we're going through this, I wouldn't mind if you're thinking, um, thinking about how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? So the first, uh, the first one we're doing uh, this week is, is the, uh, the transubstantiation view, the, the view of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, they will often call it the Eucharist. Uh, it's a Greek term, Eucharistao, just means Thanksgiving. Um, that prefix on tra- trans, the word trans just means to change. And then we're also talking about the substance. So the Roman Catholic view, they're talking about the change of the substance. Um, it's best explained by a quote by a, uh, a Roman Catholic priest by the name of John Anthony O'Brien, who writes in his book, The Faith of Millions, The Credentials of the Catholic Religion. He writes this, quote, When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. Is a power greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sins of man not once but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Oh, my God. Um, you probably you might already be able to see why I don't believe that's going to be the correct view, but we'll go through it um, briefly here. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will use uh, Aristotle, the, the, the philosopher's categories of substance and accidents. So there's a bit here, but we'll go through it slowly here. Substance is what something actually and the accidents are those properties that they don't change the substance, but they're part of the substance. So what do I mean by that? So when you see a car, you know it's a car, even if it's got a wheel stolen, even if it's red or black or yellow, it's a car. So its essence, its substance is that of a car, but things like the color, windows, whether it's got a roof or not, wheels, they're all accidents. They're part of a car, but they don't change the essence. So in Roman Catholic theology, the claim is that two miracles actually take place when the priest prays his prayer of consecration. The first miracle is that the actual bread and wine, the substance miraculously changes into, quote, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So that's the substance changing into actual flesh and blood. The second miracle is that now it's the body and blood of Christ, the accidents, the smell, the taste, the feel, the look remain that of bread and wine. Now, it's true that lots of Catholics might not know this. They might not believe it if they do know it. Though the Council of Trent in the 16th century, which was Rome's counter-reformation, actually states that any rejection of this doctrine is, is anathema. So it's a, a formal curse of excommunication from the church. So it's a fairly seriously held doctrine within the church, whether you know, Catholic believers Hold it seriously is a different, a different story. 
But if you've got your Bibles, can you open to, um, to Hebrews chapter 10? Because I, I don't want to leave it there. I actually want to hopefully paint a bit of a picture of what, um, what the Bible says about this representing or re-sacrificing Christ. So Hebrews chapter 10 gives us a bit of a glimpse as to why these doctrines of Rome should be rejected. Verse 1, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the form of those things itself can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually every year, make those who approach perfect. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... You have not desired a sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. You have not taken pleasure in whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin. Then I said, behold, I have come. It is written of me in the scroll of the book to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant which I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their mind. He then says, and their sin sins and their lawless deeds i will no longer remember now where there is forgiveness of these things an offering for sin is no longer required therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is through his flesh and since we have a great priest over the house of god Let's approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds and not abandoning our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So thanks to Jesus that we have our once-for-all-time sacrifice, a sacrifice never to be repeated, but which forever cleanses and justifies those who trust in him. Finally, just as a bit of a side side note, this is one reason why you don't tend to see altars in Protestant churches. You instead see pulpits. Why? There's no need for an altar for the trust in Christ. Because there are other sacrifice for sin, but that which was offered at Calvary. 
The Protestant church's central focus of worship is now the preaching of God's word. Uh, so, Ian, do you want to pray over the bread and the wine? Dad. Just say, Dad. Like to, uh, you haven't used these before, but it's just a simple matter of peeling the plastic off the top to give it the little wafer and then the juice below that. Father, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient. That no more is needed. For Lord, we cannot offer enough sacrifices. We cannot do enough works, good works. We cannot obey your Lord perfectly enough to fit requirements for holiness. And Father is with deep gratitude and humility that we accept the once for all sacrifice of Jesus' body on the cross where he poured out his blood to pay the penalty for our sin, to turn away the wrath of God against our sin, to bring reconciliation between us miserable sinners and the holy God so that we can stand with clear conscience and with great joy and confidence and security in your presence, Father, where we can call you, we can genuinely call you Father, for we are genuinely your children because your Son, Jesus Christ, did for us that which we could never do in a million lifetimes. So, Lord, we take this bread and we take this juice that represents your body and your blood, Jesus, and we remember what you have done. And we eat your flesh, so to speak, and drink your blood, so to speak, this morning. And we feed on the true food and the true drink that is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's eat the wafer together. When you're ready, drink the cup. Lord, it is such a precious thing to be able to do this with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we pray that you will strengthen us as we share in the body and blood of Christ this morning as we worship together, as we sit under your word, Lord. We know that your word will not return to you void, 
but will always accomplish that which you sent it out to do. So we rejoice this morning, Lord, you said, Jesus, that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we rejoice that we have that word, Lord. We rejoice that John has reminded us just how precious is the body and blood of Christ and the sacrifice made once for all, never to be repeated, never to be repeated. And that cleansing from sin that you provide through your sacrifice, Jesus, and the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. Lord, we worship you. We honour you. We exalt you, Jesus. And now as we close our meeting, Lord, we want to express our joy and our love for you by lifting up our voices in song and in praise of you, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.